you just have to keep remembering, you know, you have to be so good that people can't ignore you and just keep getting better until you are that good. Everything else is luck, I think. Luck and magic. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out my Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. In today's episode, we will explore the path of being a video game historian. So we will talk with Joe quite a bit about what exactly a video game historian is and, and what kind of journalism he does around the history of games and uh, like why it's so difficult to dig up some of the information that he's looking for to write these historical articles. But really, today's uh, episode is just a huge nerd out geek conversation about video games. So if you are a gamer or you play video games at all, you will probably really like today's episode because both Joe and I obviously play video games and we had a great time just talking about games in general. If you are not a gamer, then you should probably just start playing video games because they're freaking great. And uh, if you need any sort of convincing as to why video games are awesome, yeah, just listen to today's episode and I'm sure you will be on board. Without further ado, here is Video Game Historian. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, I cannot wait to talk games with you. Video games is like one of my favorite things in the world. So I like any chance to talk about it. I get super excited uh first i guess i'd like you to tell everyone in your own words about what you do on kind of like the video game historian side because i'm sure that in the pre-intro that will have already played i totally butchered trying to explain what it is that you do (laughs) and like the things you care about so why don't you go ahead and tell us about it sure so um basically I've, i've been a games journalist on and off in a number of roles and capacities and a number of brands for gosh coming up to about 10 years now um and over the last couple of years, I've really started focusing in on kind of yeah, game history, preserving what I kind of call the deleted scenes um, of game development. So it's looking specifically at like games that get cancelled um, or things that get cut from games that are released. Um, a lot of people don't realize like how many games just like you know, they spend years sometimes in development and then they just don't get released in the end because of you know, some technical problem or some a publisher gets bought out or a studio closes down or something like that. Um, and I spend an inordinate amount of time uh, researching this and then writing it up as and where I can. Um, it's not always the easiest uh, thing to research because a lot of the companies really, they don't want you to look into this stuff. And because games are kind of a new medium, um, getting access to some of the resources that you might need to research it properly is pretty difficult it's not it's not like say uh music or movies where this stuff's being preserved in museums all around the world um so it's quite a challenge but yeah deleted scenes is what i call it and it's kind of um just trying to preserve everything i can get my hands on really so question you mentioned um it, like them kind of not wanting to talk about it or not wanting you to know about it if a game that they were on got canceled or if a studio shut down altogether or whatever it was 
I was reading an article that you wrote yesterday, and it was really interesting talking about the game Thief and the whole Thief series and how then uh, what the person that was on this canceled Thief game went on to make Dishonored, um, which is a really cool, interesting game. And it kind of made sense to me as to why that person wouldn't want to talk much about it, because a lot of the concepts in the Thief game that got canceled probably got brought over to Dishonored. So it's like, look, I can't really talk much about this thing that got canceled because just because it got canceled doesn't mean that we're throwing away all of the ideas that were in that thing. And I don't want to go talking about it. Is that kind of the main wall that you run up against or what sort of other like barriers do people put up to to you getting knowledge about these canceled games? Yeah, so that that tends to be kind of the broad problem is people can't talk about it for a variety of reasons. It's not always that specific. So that developer, uh, Harvey Smith, who's now at Arcane Studios working on Dishonored 2, which has just been shown recently and um, at E3, which is on as we're talking now. And um, he he couldn't talk about that because of, as you say, the parallels between the game. He's actually, I got in touch with him and he was really like supportive of the idea of investigating it. But he's like, look, I'm all I'm working on a game that's very similar. I just can't talk about this now for legal and PR reasons. But at the same time, um, on other projects, other other games that I've looked into where developers are now working on entirely different things or are, in some cases, just completely out of the games industry. Um, I spoke to a developer uh, a couple of years ago called uh, Brian Moriarty, who is now a professor um, and he worked on a cancelled adventure game back in the early 90s, late 80s, called Loom. And there was a sequel for that that was in development, and that got cancelled. And he still wouldn't talk really that openly about the game um, on the record because, uh, you know, there's just such a legal threat hanging over him in terms of it's confidential material that is owned by LucasArts, now owned by Disney. And he just he couldn't really uh, be as open as, as even he might want to be. Um, yeah, like when they were employees at some time, they must have signed some sort of like non-disclosure agreement. And they're probably not, you know, it was so many years ago, they're not even sure exactly what they signed. So it's like better be safe than sorry, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating. It's one of the main frustrations for me when I'm working on this stuff is, um, you know, I've, I've done all sorts of articles about, as you say, Thief and Loom and Deus Ex and all these different games. And uh, I've never known any like publisher to kind of come back on on either the people i've spoken to or to me but there's certainly there's a big fear over sharing this sort of information um i mean one developer i spoke to he had to remain anonymous in the end and it was kind of on again off again about would he talk to me would he talk would he not for many many weeks because he was even though he was now independent and working on something entirely different he was very worried about uh any legal repercussions um Happily, at the same time, there are some people I've spoken to who are just very, very open about it. Um, Warren Spector, who also worked on Thief, is really, uh, really great at sharing the materials that he's worked on over the years um, and is very open. You know, he sent me concept documents and uh, game design documents for games that never even started development early in his career. Hmm. Um, so people, they, you know, people can have a different approach to things, but there's certainly a, a lot of fear around... Um, sharing you know this i guess confidential information so joe you have to let me know it like being someone who's researched this a lot uh, this is something that i was recently wondering about about studios being shut down and about games that are canceled like so late in their 
cycle to release i uh like the game i think it was titled fable legends um from like the fable series on xbox like that game had already done a beta with like hundreds of thousands of people playing their beta and like basically had a complete game more or less and maybe it just wasn't going to be a very good game or i don't know what you know maybe the response wasn't good but then they they canceled the entire thing and they shut the studio down like i i was blown away when i heard that and i'm sure that that's not the first instance of something like that happening like as in a game getting that far along and then just pulling the plug on everything and shutting it down what is the what makes a studio make a decision like that or, or you know the bigger public like in that case microsoft owned the studio and everything so like why would they not just put the freaking game out and get whatever money they could from putting it out like it's almost done what what is the point of pulling the plug on these games oh yeah i mean uh, i mean that's uh it's a really good question but it's it comes down to like one of two things basically uh, in my experience is one side of it is um people a game might seem complete sometimes but it can actually be really far from complete even if you've played like a a beta for a game the actual finished version that beta might be content complete it might have a home down a kind of cut down set of features possibly but developing all the other content for the game and then polishing that i mean a lot of people don't realize that a game might be in development for i don't know three four five years and it will only actually come together playable in any real shape or form in say the last six months or so because Everything else until that point is either just kind of roughly blocked out, doesn't have textures or animations aren't final or there's bugs in, in it and it's not optimized for certain platforms. So, so much of the work happens late in development that even though a game from the outside might seem, oh, it's in beta, you know, it's near release. It might actually, from the development side, be, you know, a, a fair fair chunk away from that interesting Um, so like those one or two levels might be in beta but the entire rest of the game is is nowhere near as polished as those one or two levels exactly yeah and then the other side of it is especially for games like fable legends um which is actually so that's developed by lionhead uh who are just um not that far away from me actually here in london um they're over in guildford and um so that game and some others like it that get cancelled is because that the investment that the publisher or developer have to make will actually extend far, far past the release date. It's not like uh, just release it and then kind of you, you wash your hands off it and get soak in the money. You know, it's um, it's that game then has to be supported. There's going to be loads more bugs that come in. You're going to have to do community management, QA. To oh, right, because so many games and like that game was going to be is is like mainly an online game nowadays. So you yeah, just have to exactly. keep supporting it after its release. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, as one of the side effects, I think, as we move into kind of games as a service, um, which is kind of the latest trend of like um, seeing games that are then supported through microtransactions after their actual release. They might be free to play up front and then you're buying all these little, you know, buying extra card packs and so on. That, that means that that game is going to be in a constant state of development. It has to be maintained. Um, and that, that becomes really expensive over time. So if a game... Is that if you're not confident, you're going to get that kind of trickling through of money all the time. Yeah, it's best to just cancel it and cut your losses, uh, and then you get into other things as well. So it might be that if you're not confident in the quality of a game, um, <clears throat> might not release it just because it might damage the brand. The brand is 
know, one of the things we see, especially with AAA games now, is that it's all about these big heavy hitters in AAA. They need to sell multiple millions to really kind of break even. Um, there was the issue a couple of years ago now where Square Enix released a, a reboot of Tomb Raider. And Tomb Raider is a big game. That's a big brand. They Crystal Dynamics and Square Enix invested millions of pounds in developing that. And that's, that's another game that I've looked into the development of. And it sold 3.4, I think, 3.4, 3.6 million units. And that didn't hit sales expectations. You know, they did not consider that a success. Wow. Uh, it needed to sell significantly more than that. Um, and so, you know, anything that's kind of going to damage the brand or dam- or unless it's going to go absolutely gangbusters and sell millions and millions um, for a big publisher, sometimes it's best just cut your losses or just move on, even if that can seem bewildering from the outside because you, you think it's so close to being finished. So in that regard, another another thing that I've always uh, kind of like had my eye on and wondered about in games, I, man, it's seriously so great having you on the show, Joe. You get, you get to answer all these questions for me that I've always wondered. Um, if if there is a game that is supposed to be more or less a AAA game, and you could tell it's like a new IP from a company, and okay. the first one just doesn't hit, if it doesn't hit, and then the company goes on to make the second game anyways, it, do you know about like what thought process goes into making the second one anyways? So like let's say with that Tomb Raider reboot that it wasn't you know three point four million, so it's like oh it was short. But it was it was all right still. So, you know, of course, we're going to make a second. Let's say it had sold one million copies, so like a third of what it sold. How do they decide then? Like, do we even freaking make a second one or do we just shut this thing down for a little while? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that I'm I can only speculate on some of that. Um, I think a lot of that will end up depending on the publisher and the developer and the uh, kind of specifics of the relationship between the two. Right. I mean. You might see a game like so like tomb raider didn't hit sales expectations but they did a sequel um and a lot of that will have been to do with the fact that it sold modestly may not have hit expectations but it sold modestly the developer had put out what everybody i think agreed was a quality product i th- I, I really like that tomb raider reboot i think it's brilliant um and so there was probably like a, a fair amount of good faith and then there might have also been issues to do with um, they might have signed a contract committing to a sequel or, um, you know, the scores may have uh, from uh, reviews may have been high enough to suggest that if they could get momentum going and recoup losses further down the line. Um, and then that the other issue is that if once you, when you're making the first in a series of AAA games, often the first one can be the hardest to make. Um, so you see, Oh, right. Good point you might see that they develop the tools for the first game and then the second game they can develop a lot faster because they can just reuse those tools and then optimize them or uh, enhance them a little bit. So it's um, so much cheaper to make the second game. Yeah, yeah, that can be the case. Um, or uh, you might see that they, they will take an entirely different punt on it because it might be the same brand, might be the same IP, but they might give it to a different studio. Um, you see that with um, Activision, for example, when they do Call of Duty. So they alternate between two studios. One will be done by uh, Treyarch and one will be done by Infinity Ward. And they switch between the two. So every time a new um, one will be done by Treyarch, one, next one will be done by uh, Infinity Ward. And those developers both have different styles. They both make different types of games. And they're, you know, 
they, it doesn't matter if one doesn't do well because the other one is already work. The other studio is already working on the second. One. Right. Yeah. You're not going to stop the second studio from working on it. But it can depend. It can it can vary. I mean, um, Darksiders, I think, was a, another game by THQ uh, a couple of years ago, which didn't hit sales expectations, despite being you know, a fairly big AAA game. And um, I, that was a new IP, and they took a punt on a sequel to that. And from what I understand, that also didn't hit sales expectations. And so they, they've not made a third one, which isn't surprising. I mean, there's other issues there to do with THQ, but... Um, it can depend on the developer and how, I guess, open to risk they are as well. Um, all right. So all all this has me thinking of a couple other things that I want to talk about. Uh, I I swear at some point we'll get to what you do for a living. I, I just man, <laughs> I have so many questions for you. So one is, what the hell makes a game hit and another game not hit? Like there's some sometimes like I will be so in love with the game and it'll even be like let's say a triple A game. Like I know that the Bioshock had like issues with sales with some of their games. I thought that Bioshock Infinite was one of the greatest games I've ever played in my life. Like I thought the story was just absolutely amazing. Um, one of like the better, more interesting stories told in games, like really bizarre sci-fi elements and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was deemed like a failure. And I, it, I, I it, it's just like, that's so mind blowing to me. Like who is not buying this game? You know, like it's so frustrating to me. Like what, how, how does this happen? Um, man, I mean, that's a big question. There's, um, so many elements to unpack there because I mean, on the one side of it, so you look at something like Bioshock and I mean, so let's be honest, nobody knows what, why things do and don't hit. Um, no one's got that down to a science, and if they did, they would be releasing constant hits, right? So, yeah, um, good point. But I mean, look at Bioshock. One of the reasons that might not have sold well is um, it had it had no multiplayer element, for example, right? And it um, it had uh, downloadable content that was released afterwards, um, but the concept for Bioshock was kind of as you say, it was kind of out there. It was a weird kind of sci-fi story. And then the downloadable content was kind of different as well, where it was set back in the universe of Bioshock 1 and 2. I think the name might have had something to do with it. So it wasn't just Bioshock 3, it was Bioshock Infinite, and it was set in this weird new place that people who had bought Bioshock 1 and 2 might not recognize, even even though they knew the name. Um, So there are a lot of elements that could have played into that. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, I think a part of it is that Bioshock Infinite sold, it sold well, it sold really well. And if it didn't hit sales targets, um, for someone, uh, for some of the publishers, then, you know, it might just be that their expectations were too high. Right. A lot, you know, these are big companies, they have to show growth to their shareholders. And, um, sometimes that growth that you're promising just isn't realistic. Um, so there's that side of it. Um, if you're asking my personal opinion, I think anyway, there are lots of people out there who will say, like, you know, the secret to having a good hit is having just uh, a, an elevator pitch, for example, like be able to sum your game up in like two or three sentences and make it relatable to as many people as possible. I've heard um, some people who work in marketing before say that um, the best way to make sure that a game can actually sell and will be appeal to people is to be able to describe it in terms of other games to be able to say oh this is like this is like call of duty meets 
XCOM or this is like um, I don't know Thief meets Doom, something like that. Um, but my personal opinion, I think a lot of it is luck. I think a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. That's really what determines a hit. You can you can bias things in your favor. You can have a big marketing budget, and you can have a really talented team, and you can have a really like interesting idea and do something that's really going to stand out in the market. But there are a lot, and there are examples that prove that if you do just one of those things, that's, that can be a really big success. Something like Gone Home, for example, where it was no huge marketing budget. It didn't have uh, multiplayer or downloadable content or any of this like new fashionable uh, microtransactions or anything in games, but um, it did have a really interesting concept and it sold really well. Um, but at the same time, I think that's possibly just falling into confirmation bias, right? There's, for every game like Gone Home, that has got a really interesting idea and that's all it needs and it sells well. There's loads of games you haven't heard of that have. Oh, it's got to be so ideas. frustrating for developers. And it, I see, you know, th- there's parallels in all forms of art in like in in movies and television and even like podcasts versus radio or whatever else. It's such an interesting dichotomy where like there's so much of the time you almost kind of like lose faith in humanity, as it were. Like if you look at like the new the new TV shows that come out on a regular basis, it's like who is watching these as I see these like commercials and like, why are these studios making these things? And I guess the studios are making these because this is what people want to see, or this is what they think people want to see. What's strange is that so many of those end up getting canceled, but it's the, you know, all of like the blockbuster movies, a lot of the time can just be sort of like vanilla, let's say. And that makes you like lose faith in humanity a little bit. And then though they'll they'll be this like amazing uh like artistic beautiful wonderful movie or, or a movie with like some amazing plot that's just so interesting and and that sells better than like any movie of the entire year or something. And and then your faith is restored. You know, it's like oh, people do appreciate it if you go out on a limb and you try to do something really cool or try to do something really new. And um and like or right before the interview, we were talking about Fez because the I have the little character from the game Fez as my icon on Skype. And like Fez, I think, is a really great example of that. Like talk about going out on a limb and trying to do something, which to to your point earlier of the, the fact that a marketing person would tell you, oh, you need to be able to describe a game in terms of other games like I I hate that concept. It's like, no, like, just tell me what your game's about. Like, I want to know what your game's about. And I I almost hope that it's not like anything that I've ever played, you know, because I actually enjoy playing games. Like, I like playing new things and like, treat me to something new, please. And that's exactly what Fez did. And Fez was a huge success, you know, and uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting that we tell people always in life to kind of take the path of least resistance to success, I guess. So like that path of least resistance or, or or the path to most assured success would be that marketing person's advice of like, oh, you have to kind of give them something familiar that they know and oh, you better release it in the summertime. You know, like all these like cliche things that someone needs to do. But at least once a year, there's some standout thing that gets a lot of uh, like acclaim and, and like well-deserved success. And um, and it shows you that the audience is ready for stuff like that. Um, yeah. 
to, to your think, point, like I, I don't know what I, I don't know what makes a Fez versus a game that flopped, or what makes a um, Come Home or the the other game that you were mentioning versus, um, it, yeah, but like it, it it clearly people are ready for these unique games, and what makes one hit and one not, I, I don't know, but it, it, I I think that that audiences are 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 better than we give them credit for. Yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> there have been times in my career where I've I've been very cynical and jaded but i certainly like i agree with you now i think especially after seeing how the industry's changed over the last decade over the last five years even in terms of just embracing independent games things like fez things like braid uh gone home super meat boy all these games that have just gone absolutely just absolutely crazy um yeah i think people are open for new things but what that what that special X factor is that makes something hit. Um, there was one game recently. Uh, I can't remember who the developer of it is now off the top of my head, but the makers of rocket league, which is a um, really interesting kind of sports game. It's, it, I'll do the thing of, of trying to describe it with other games to keep it quick, but it's football with cars and uh, um, soccer for all the American listeners. Oh, but yeah, football cars. for everyone else. And um and they, the developer of that, that game has been absolutely massive. Like all my friends are still playing it at the moment. I can't go a night without getting a request from someone. <laughs> Rocket League, and it's like, yeah, of course. Um, it's a brilliant game. But that developer actually released an almost identical game um, a couple of uh, months or years before. That was the same concept, made by the same team. They, you know, this when they came to making Rocket League, they didn't have a huge marketing budget to kind of like really push it out there and ram it down everyone's throats and buy billboards and all this. Um, but the first game flopped and Rocket League is, you know, is doing exceptionally well, is, is a breakout hit for them. Um, I don't think anyone can really point at why one failed and one's, you know, smashed the, through the ceiling. Um, all you can do is kind of, you do the best work you can. I think you find, find out, what you want to achieve and persistence persistence is the main thing right if you're good at something you keep doing it you keep getting better at it and eventually i think people will take notice yeah totally the thing that's uh the thing that can be hard for a creator of anything is when you're not getting success that persistence that you're talking about is like do i persist in the same direction that i'm already going like if no one's paying attention to me right now does that mean that i suck and that like i'm not making good games or i'm not making good art or whatever it is or is it just that not enough people have heard about me yet and i really just need to keep on you know making this same style of thing yeah i mean it's tricky i mean the only thing because i've wondered that just with about writing as well like in my own life and it's like the only the only thing you have to you just have to keep remembering you know you have to be so good that people can't ignore you and just keep getting better until you are that good um yeah and then everything else is luck i think luck and magic (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely man all right let's uh let's get back on track to uh to some more actually this isn't quite back on track so never mind um all right another question i have for you joe how old are you uh i'm 31 okay I'm 30, so we're basically the same age. I I don't understand. Like, there's a couple of casual games that I will play on my phone if I'm just like stuck in an airport or something like that. But usually, I won't even do that. Like, I got other I got other stuff to do. So I I, I basically never play games on my phone and stuff. 
I I know that I am of an older age for for get, you know I, I'm of like the people that came up playing Nintendo when I was a little kid and stuff like that. So I'm used to playing on consoles. So that's like a huge part of it. For all these kids that are now being raised with an iPad in their hand or um you know an iPhone in their hand or something like that, is this rise of casual like just because I don't play casual games doesn't mean that I don't know that there's like millions of copies of these games being sold, you know? So like will we ultimately see the fall of more serious games like the games that you and I enjoy playing, or do you think that there's always going to be a space for that? Like, does the younger generation even care about bigger, more serious games, or are they like too ADD'd out from being born with an iPad in their hand? Um that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't think we'll see. Certainly not in the short to medium term. We won't see, you know, big games disappear. There's just, there's too much money to be made there still, and it's money that's made in a different way um, to casual games. I think casual games are they're they're interesting, and they can be. I'm trying to choose my words carefully. They can be a gateway for other people to come in and then discover other games. Like, I, I mean, I play casual games on my uh, i play bejeweled and stuff on my phone every now and then and some of those some of the casual games that are made are like incredibly sophisticated there's a lot of psychology and a lot of thought that goes into them and even you know there's a lot of really good design um out there if you look at something like um peggle for example or um oh my god that's like one of my favorite games of all time i love peggle so much that's that's a casual game right there's no oh yeah totally there's no real um you know deep skill or story or anything in there. It's really just simple kind of um, throwaway game. But I think it's a really well-made game. I think there's a lot of merit to it. I think it's a game that's worth like possibly re- like spending a lot of time talking about. Um, but I don't think it's going to get rid of Call of Duty anytime soon. And I don't think Call of Duty is going to um, get rid of Peggle either. I think it's what we're seeing now is more games more types of games for and the 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 gate the thing that casual games have really shown us as well is that there's more people out there who want to play games who who would be into games if games catered to their interests and catered to the way that they want to play them yeah you know my um my mum for example she she would never play uh dishonored or call of duty or bioshock or any of these these big games that i like um, but she'd play Candy Crush and she'd play Peggle. She'd play Little Inferno and World of Goo and all these little things. Um, and she'd get an enormous amount of enjoyment out of them. And my nephew, um, he wouldn't play Peggle probably, but he'd play Minecraft. Um, I think now we're seeing, as we've seen in other industries like music, it's, it's different products, different uh, niches catering to different needs, different strokes for different folks, really. Um so I think I think the rise of casual games and the number that we're seeing of them now. I mean, a lot of them I would not play myself, and I have very little patience personally for any game that has microtransactions in anything that that has in-app ads or stuff like that. They drive me crazy. Yeah. Um, but other people like them, and if that gets more people, if that makes people happy, and that gets people interested in games and um, playing other games in the future as well, then I think that's a great thing. Okay, so that, that you just brought up a good point. So it, it boggles my mind and bums me out that there is still a like a bad stigma with being a gamer. Like anytime I actually like 
talk about playing video games with people, I there's a, a big part of me that like straight up feels like ashamed and like bad about myself. Like when I'm sitting here talking with you, when I talk with other gamers, like I don't care, obviously, like when I'm playing, when I'm hanging out with any of my friends that play games, but I hang out with a ton of people that don't play games. And it, I, I also have like a ton of other, like, like most normal human beings, like I have a ton of other hobbies that I really enjoy doing. And there's just something about games that has this like totally bad negative stigma with it. Like if, if I were to meet someone, uh, you know, new at like a park or a bar or whatever, and we'll be talking and they're like, Oh, like, what do you enjoy doing? If I were to say like, Oh, like I love to go rock climbing. They'd be like, Oh, that's so cool. And if you say like, oh, I like to sit in my house and play video games, it's just like, oh, okay, dude. Like, it's kind of this implied like, oh, you're this like burnout, loser, stone. Like, I don't know what. First of all, why is there still this bad stigma with gamers? Is that ever going to go away, do you think? Like, because of maybe uh, younger people playing games more because they're more casual or can be more casual? And do you ever feel weird about being a gamer? Do you like? Do you know what I'm even talking about right now? Yeah, I mean, I I, I know acutely what you're talking about, and it's 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 something that I think um, has really that kind of stigma has kind of got worse over the the last couple of years. There's a lot of th- things that have happened if you're really deep into the games industry, which have kind of left a bad taste in people's mouths. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely a stigma from some people um, and for some people. I don't know. I go back and forth on it, to be honest. I think partly it's like on my, on my, the optimistic side, I think any identity that anyone takes too close to their heart, anything, whenever someone says like, you know, uh, I don't know, I work in marketing, for example. And um, therefore, if I describe myself as working in marketing and I go out and I really take that in as the core of my identity, who am I? I work in marketing. I'm a marketeer. Um, that can be quite, destructive and some people might react badly to oh man i am so happy that you just said this (laughs) this is like a major talk i want to have at some point on my show one day but i could not agree with what you just said more that that is like a major point is like how much are you are you choosing to self-identify with one single thing that you do versus (laughs) versus being like you know i i am blake like this this happens to be one thing that i enjoy doing um yeah I mean, is those are very different statements but like gamer or not yeah i mean which yeah, yeah. The, so the marketing term is great i mean and i've struggled with that personally in the past where i've like I've, I've really identified as i'm a games journalist you know a time when i worked for a magazine i was just that's what i do i don't do anything else and uh, i ended up turning away a lot of opportunities and kind of closing my focus a lot because of that and it, was, it wasn't great and i was just like widened my scope again to compensate for it but so on on the optimistic side i do think like no matter what your hobby if you take it too far like it becomes it becomes a problem right um and then on the other side i can appreciate that from the outside looking in games and gaming especially can often seem like a really um like a, a kind of a bad hobby to have right because it's when you're sitting there playing a computer game on your own, you're sitting there, you're playing a computer game on your own. It's isolating, right? Even if you're playing it online, connected to like 20 other people, you might, you're still in a room on your own. You're closed off. You've got your headphones on. You're staring at a screen. It's like, um, you know, there's from the outside looking in, people don't always understand what you're getting out of it. 
So to, I know you're playing devil's advocate right now, but so to play devil's advocate to the devil's advocate, here's something that I think <laughs> about a lot that, that is something that I really don't understand in that regard, because you're absolutely right. One is, yeah, like you said, there's like, I, I have certain friends that I, like 80% of our, you know, that we don't live in the same city anymore. And like 80% of our relationship is, is shared when playing games together online. And we, you know, we're sitting there with like the volume of the game muted more or less. And we're just having like a two hour long conversation about how our lives are and philosophy and whatever else while we're playing this game, you know? So it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to call a guy friend of mine and have a two hour long conversation with them. That's just like not something that I do, but I will play games with them for a couple hours and that's great. You know, it's a good way to connect. Totally aside from that, it's very interesting to me that if like uh, a really good friend of mine, he doesn't play games at all. He reads constantly like that's like all he does so when he gets home from work he sits down and opens a book and sits on the couch and he'll read for like three hours and i know there's some people who are like really into movies and maybe they're like a movie buff and they review movies and they're just like all about it if again like if you were to meet someone out at a bar or whatever and you just say like oh what are your hobbies like oh i love reading like that is so respected you know it's like so you go home and you sit by yourself on the couch and you're reading but because it's a book in your hand everyone is like fully on board with you everyone's like oh that's that's great man like wow you must be a really cool dude you like you know you're you're so deep and interesting because you like having this story told to you or if you know you're really into movies cool you're like trying to analyze this story that you're watching but if you say you're into games which now, you know, my all of my favorite games are the are kind of like more deep, engrossing story based games. It's doing the exact same thing as watching a movie or reading a book, but it's even more involved than that. Like you get to make these choices as the character versus just watching the events unfold in front of your face. And it's so, uh, man, it's just so frustrating and bizarre to me that like that I have to feel ashamed saying like, oh, when I go home, sometimes I play games. And that if and my buddy who goes home and sits on his couch and and reads books does not have to feel ashamed in that same way. Yeah, I mean, well, I think there's two things there, right? And it's one is one is the fact that like games, computer games in the way we're talking about them is is still a very young medium. Like it's been, it's really only kind of come about and really grown within my lifetime, whereas um, it got to the scale that it is now, um, and. You know, whereas books, for example, like books, everyone kind of, I think one of the reasons people appreciate that and see that as, as being more intellectual, like for all I know, your friend could be sitting there just rereading Fifty Shades of Grey over and over <laughs> and over. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or he could be sitting there and reading like um, some big philosophy book. But instantly you set, you tell me he's a bit of a bookworm and immediately I'm like, oh, okay, I have an impression of him. Um, and that comes, I think, from the fact that books have been around for hundreds of years it's a skill that everyone has to learn it's a skill not everyone can learn easily it's um there's a lot of regard if you go back like hundreds of years to like the types of books people were writing and and monks and illustration and bibles and this sort of stuff like there's a lot of kind of prestige that's been built up in the idea of writing over time um and i think we're seeing that now happening with um we're starting to see that happen with games it's it's getting kind of more well respected maybe in some areas i mean um i don't know how things are in the states but here in here in london for example the vna 
um, Victoria and Albert Museum has has recently done um, curations and exhibitions about Minecraft and about other computer games. So suddenly you're starting to get that kind of prestige and that respect, but it does take time. And then the other thing I think is that um, uh, uh, when you say that like your friends don't play games sometimes, it's the thing that I always think about is a lot of people are gamers. They just don't realize it. I mean, I, I had an experience with my mum when I went back um, to see my parents recently where my mum has no time for games. Never, She would probably say she's never played a computer game in her life. If you asked her now, she would still say that. Um, but when I saw her last, kind of we sat down and on a whim, I got my laptop out and plugged it into the TV. And she sat there for four and a half hours straight and played from start to finish uh, a game called Her Story made by Sam Barlow. Um, and that, that is a brilliant game. You can get it on your phone too. I strongly encourage people to try that game out. It is brilliant. Um, and she played that game start to finish, four and a half hours. She unlocked every piece of content within the game. She loved it. She thought it was brilliant. But she would never say she played a computer game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Joe, let's actually talk about your job now and what you do. So you mentioned some of the uh, like your interests in the history of games and games that have been canceled um, and deleted scenes from games and stuff like that. First of all, like, why do you even care really about those things? And and, and as an aside, like I, I was reading an article of yours yesterday and it mentioned how long you were researching another article that you had written about a canceled game. And it was like months and months and months. And a normal video game article is written, you know, in the matter of like a day or so, you know, just like yeah. reviewing a game or a little note about a game. You have to spend months on these things that... I would imagine a lot of gamers just don't really care about. It's like you care a lot about it, but they just want to hear, hey, what's your review of the new Call of Duty game or whatever else? So, like, what makes you care so much about this? And is it strange caring so much about something and spending so much time on something when there's not, like, a huge audience for that? Um. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one to unpack. I mean, I think, for starters, I think there are people that care. It's just kind of, there's less people that care more rather than more people that care less. You know, I've, I've written a lot, of, a lot of reviews that kind of you get, you write them in a day after a couple of days of playing a game. And, you know, that's fine and great. And people will, a lot of people will open that article and scan through and read the score at the end and not read most of the, what you've written and then move on. And, um, as I've kind of gone on in my career, I've, I've kind of wanted to focus more on the things that people will actually read and will stay with people and people actually care about. And one way to do that is to um, write about things that people don't know about, even if they are just focused on these specific games, even if they're old games um, that a few people still are really interested in. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it's more people that care, it's fewer people who care more rather than more people that care less. Um, and as for like why in it, I mean, there's so many reasons. I mean, part of it, the reason I kind of got kind of turned on to all of this stuff is um, growing up when I was at school, um, there was a game called Deus Ex, which is kind of, was one of the forerunners to Bioshock and Dishonored and, and titles like that. And there's, um, it was developed, oh, the d development was led partly by um, a developer called Warren Spector, who um, 
went on to make a lot of other games like Epic Mickey and um, he's, uh, you know, Deus Ex is now this big franchise as well. And um, I really like growing up, I loved that game. It was, it was the game we all talked about on the bus on the way to school and it had a really profound impact on me. And naturally when I became a journalist, I followed it and I, I took every opportunity to write more about it. And then a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Warren Spector. He was promoting um, Epic Mickey and I interviewed him um, at uh, an event in Germany. And, you know, I couldn't help myself. I just asked about um, their sex and started picking his brain a bit. And he he said, you know, you know, if you care about this much, this stuff so much, you should go and check out this, uh, the University of Texas. And I said, well, why should I take, check that out? And he said, well, there's a, they have an archive there, uh, the Dolph Briscoe archive um, in the Center for American History. And basically he said, I, I've taken all of the design documents I've written in the past and I've just given them to this archive. And so they have them. If you want to know more about it um, and find out more about like the development of Deus Ex, you should give them a call. Because um, I'm, you know, subtext is probably, he's here to talk about Epic Mickey. And um, I was kind of interested in that, went away and went into those notes and just found out all this amazing stuff. Like about Deus Ex used to have this in, entirely different story it, it was completely different design the game that was released was kind of like x-files and it was all about traveling all over the world the original design was based solely in texas when te- russia invaded texas for some reason it's just entirely different game and you know I, i'm type of person i can't read something that i'm interested in without oversharing it with everybody and so i, I kind of got turned on to um researching that in, in an inordinate amount of detail um and one of the things the other things i've come to love about were you able to do this all online or did you have to go to texas to the university of texas to do this uh it was a mix so i, I was um i've gone back to that archive several times and so uh online i was able to do it and kind of beg some favors from students who i got in touch with there and you know can you photocopy this for me send me and fax me that um, I've also um, had friends who are, are now in the States who have been kind enough to pop on, pop along and do things for me. Um, so I've been there by proxy. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Um, but yeah, one of the other things that I've since come to love about it is about doing these sorts of articles is it really, it throws context onto the game development um, and really illuminates things that you wouldn't otherwise know about a game. Um so one of one of the th- articles that I wrote one time was about um, actually again about Deus Ex and it was about a, a version of Deus Ex um, that was going to be released uh, uh, Deus Ex Three and it was developed by a developer it was made by a developer called Jordan Thomas um, and I spoke to him at length um, and he kind of shared with me like at that time in his life he was he was obsessed with this idea of being um, really creative of really um, blowing the the lid off of the games industry and showing that games and story, uh, gameplay and story can be fused together in this really interesting design. And he he really wanted to surprise everybody and prove himself and um, really make his mark. He was kind of a young guy at that stage and, and really wanted to have a big impression on the industry. Um, and that game never got released. And, um, you know, that was kind of a, talking to him i realized that was kind of a really 
pivotal and interesting like moment for him. He wanted to take this franchise that he, he was also really invested in and he wanted to make his mark on it. And then it got cancelled and he had to, that studio closed down and he had to go and move on to something else. Um, and it was kind of, um, it changed the way that he thought about games. And he later went on to work on um, some of like the most well-regarded levels in game in you know, all of games history. He worked on Bioshock, the original one, and um, I think he was lead designer on Bioshock 2. And uh, he's just released, um, or not just last year, released a uh, his own game called The Magic Circle. And The Magic Circle is really interesting because it is about the development of games. It is about a game that gets cancelled. And the developer kind of you in the game you you are a tester basically who walks around all these different parts of different games which are badly sewn together and does the game doesn't work and it was really interesting to then play his later games and put that together with the knowledge of how he what had inspired him because it made me look at that game in a different light and so that's another th part of what i've uh, come to love about this sort of research is being able to get to know both the process and the people behind the games when they're made, not just, you know, here's a fun game. Um, I'm going to play it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to then move on and play and enjoy a different game. Yeah, it makes the game that you're playing that much richer and deeper for you. Yeah, it's, it's the difference between, um, I guess, it's the difference between, um, like, really, like, watching a Christopher Nolan film and just enjoying it and going on to the next one and then being able to kind of learn about his process of making uh, films and how he came to make films that way and uh, why he why Christopher Nolan works so much with his brother and the process that they have writing and directing and stuff like that it just it really um yeah it makes the, it makes my appreciation of games that much richer so obviously this is like a labor of love for you you're publishing exactly. these on various <laughs> sites so First of all, are these are the bigger stories really only published on your own site, or do you like sell them to Eurogamer or any of the the bigger sites that you contribute to? Yeah, I mean, I sell them wherever I can. I mean, uh, I've published some of these stories on sites like Rock Paper Shotgun and um, Eurogamer is one. Um, spoken about them occasionally on the radio and done some for trusted reviews as well. Um, do they does a of uh, an article like that that took you like six months to research and write it, does that give you any more money than just writing a five minute game review <laughs> not no <laughs> no it doesn't um i'm not really i'm i'm lucky that i i have a day job and so um this isn't freelance games journalism isn't something that i do um just I, there was a time a couple of years ago when it was just know what i did as my for my paycheck and now uh, i'm lucky enough that i can spend more time researching than I otherwise would if i was doing this sort of writing this sort of research full time it, it would not be it would not be economically viable really to use a horrible term it's um yeah the pay in games journalism is not great and it's getting better and um you know i consider myself lucky that i've been in games for like 10 years and I've worked on magazines and I kind of have the contacts. I know how things work so I can get paid for it at all. Um, I consider myself lucky just for that. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, Joe, what don't is go, your, don't, don't, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. 
I was going to say, just don't go into games journalism if you want to be a millionaire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure, man. Uh, so I want to ask you about some of your favorite games of all time. But before we do that, when you are reviewing a game in your own head, so not like to write a review, but just in terms of games that you appreciate um, before we go over your top five games, what are the things that you look for most when you are reviewing a game in your own head? Um, that's a tricky one. It can depend on the type of mood you're in, right? I mean, sometimes it comes down to, um, I get, I've heard it describes everything from kinesthetics to game feel, right? But it's just the way the game feels when you play it. Does it, does it, does it click with you? Is there something in your head that when you're, when you're playing that game, you just go, Oh, I get this. I understand how this works. Um, I remember at the I, one of the games I, I don't actually like it that much as a as a series, but Halo is um, a game that I I play, and something about the way the character moves in that, the turning speed, the weapons, and every, the way everything's balanced, it just it clicks with me. First time I ever played it was um, at a press event for Halo Two, and I was playing it against a number of the development team who had played it for obviously hours and hours and hours and hours. And I wiped the floor with them. <laughs> I'm not a good competitive gamer. This isn't a big, like, I'm amazing at games boast, but something about that game, just like, I could do that. I, I understood it in a way that just naturally made sense to me. So there's, there's an element of that. Um, and then at the same time, I'm, a lot of the time, I'm looking for something that is uh, new, something that is going to put me into a particular, to really just have an impact on me, actually. I don't really always mind what that impact would be i would like a game that can make me laugh as much as i make like might might like a game that could make me cry um and yeah you know i have cried at games before that's some games like life is strange was the last game i think i played that really kind of had a big emotional impact on me. yeah totally man i just played that game in the last like six months or something god it's that's so amazing that's a brilliant game and um yeah, if a game can have that sort of impact on me, I think that's really special as well. Um, yeah, because I, I, to be honest, I play all sorts of games. I, I wouldn't consider myself like limited to. There are genres I uh, I really don't like of games, like racing games. I have no interest in. I, I have just no interest in cars. Full stop. Um, but if there was a racing game that had an interesting story that could really kind of like evoke an emotion from me i'm sure i'm sure i'd give it a go and enjoy it yeah totally agreed man it sounds like you and i probably like a very similar uh <laughs> style of game what are your top five games man i, I wrote you this ahead of time so hopefully you are yeah. able to figure out the top five <laughs> games and if any of them actually i would assume for the most part it's probably like not going to be in any particular order but if there is anyone that like oh these are truly my top two or something um let us know well, I mean, that's I've not put them in any order, um, although there, there were two that immediately just came to mind. Um, I struggled with this. You did send me this in advance. And I struggled with it like all day. Um, so the first game on, on the list was is Dishonored, which is um, the new game, or the newer game from Harvey Smith. Um, and Harvey Smith is a developer who I followed throughout like my entire life and his entire career. Um, and teaching him like work on games like Deus Ex and then Thief, um, and coming on to Dishonored, and it's for those who don't know, it's kind of a, a stealth action game set in this medieval, based kind of based on London. It's a steampunky medieval world, and you're an assassin who can 
has to take out these set number of targets to save a princess. So it's kind of at the high level, it's kind of schlocky and um, very gamey, you know. Um, but what I love about that game is really it's that game feel I was talking about before. Something about me just I get that game. I can play it really fast. I, I could pro- probably like speed run it if I wanted to. Um, and then it's a game that is all about choices. It's it's really more of a toy box than a game in that it gives you all these interesting powers to play with as a character in the in that world. You can teleport. You can time you can uh, possess people you can do all this like all these interesting things um and then you can combine those tools in odd ways and you can apply them in unusual ways that you might not be might not expect so you can for example uh, freeze time and then possess somebody who's just shot at you and then use the possession to move him in front of his own bullet and then unfreeze time and he ends up shooting himself um i i i I love that game. I love, yeah, I love that that's become such a thing in games now that like, there's just such this depth that if people, and and you're right, like Dishonored did that so well that if people are like, oh, well, how, how do you beat this game? Or like, how are you supposed to play? It's like, the answer is like, oh, well, how, however you want to play is how you play. And you beat the game by doing the things that you want to do. Like you have to, you have to create your own way to beat the game. There is, you know, these 20 ways to beat it or whatever. Um, Go ahead and pick one out and start playing the game in that way that, that feels right to you. Yeah. And one of the things, the other thing I love about that game is because it's, so it's a stealth game. It's all about like uh, one way you can play it and the way you're kind of encouraged to play it is to hide, to sneak past guards and enemies instead of confronting them. Um, and that ends up supporting a lot of the tool-based gameplay because you get stuck in these moments where you're you're sneaking along, it's all going well, and then someone turns around when you won't expect it, and suddenly you have to improvise in, and just come up with something to get yourself out of it. And that moment of just having creativity forced upon you um, is really interesting in play. A lot of my favorite games uh, do that. Cool. So was this one one of the top two? How you were saying that two of them like oh, top in your head? Yeah, that's top one probably. Oh um, wow! I think it says something that that's maybe if if you're going to play it once, it's maybe I don't know about a twelve fifteen hour game. And I've sunk at least like two hundred and fifty hours into that. Holy crap! No <laughs> I just, way. I, I play it again and again and again, just going through different levels and just I, I do it to calm down sometimes now because it just feels so um, so comforting to me in some way. Um, but yeah, the other one, the second game on the list would be um, the original. It was released when I was a kid, and I played it on the Amiga. And it's The Secret of Monkey Island, which is um, a very old kind of pirate comedy uh, adventure game about a a geeky kid who in the Caribbean who wants to go off and be a big pirate. And uh, a lot of those notes were then picked up in Pirates Caribbean, the film because they're both based on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disneyland. And um, I that was kind of a defining game for me when I was, I was young, both because on the one hand, it was about a character I could really sympathize with, this kind of geeky, kind of gawky um, kid who wants to grow up and be something, you know, kind of unusual and adventurous, and no one takes him seriously, and he's kind of bumbling through life. That, as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, that really I empathised with that. And then at the same time, um, I played it with my brother, um, and he would often like sit next to me, and I would I would 
read out passages from the game to him and we would work on puzzles together and so that was just a nice way to grow up and that had a a big that sort of backseat gaming changed a lot of how i like to play games now uh, so that's that was really another, cool uh, another big one for me um the next game I've got on my list is one that probably no one has heard of. It's called uh, Facade, and it's not actually a game. It's um, it's anyway. It was kind of a project, an AI artificial intelligence um, experiment that these uh, academics made. Uh, it's very short and it's free. You can download it on PC, um, and it's about um, you play a character who is invited over to a dinner party. And you go into the into the dinner party with this other couple, and uh, it's random every time you play. But they they will generally start having an argument about something or other, and you have to bear witness to this argument. But the interesting thing about it is you can literally type in anything. You just type in what you want to say, and you walk around this room and you say it, and your character says it. And most of the time, those the couple that are in the room with you will react to it. So if you say something inappropriate, they will tell you off. Or they will say, uh, you know, you need to get out. If you make a joke, they might laugh at it. It's not perfect. It's There's a lot of places where it kind of falls down um, and things don't really work as they should do. But that came out maybe five, six years ago. And I think the promise of that, I like the potential in that game because it's, it's not about shooting things with a gun. It's about having a conversation and emulating a, a human re- interaction. And wow, that's really that's interesting. Why. Yeah, so many like good console games that I like that are story based. Like you know, the thing for quite a while now has been giving you many different options of things to say. Like there'll be four different options of things to say at any given time, and that's going to completely change the way that the story plays out depending on the things that you said. But really opening it up to being able to say anything, not not like, oh, here's your four choices of things to say, but that you can, you know, say anything. That's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, so you get actually like scripts you can download from that game afterwards as well. I've seen people play it where they just they go to a dinner party and they just keep saying, I'm Batman, I'm Batman, I'm Batman over and over again. And the the reaction from the characters in the game is kind of as you would expect if someone did that at an actual dinner party they don't know <laughs> what to make of it or how to react and eventually when you repeat yourself too many times the guy just comes over and says you know i think it's time you went home and you're escorted out of the house oh that's awesome so those sorts of things are really fun um another game i've got on my list i struggled about whether to put this one or was um a, a little casual game called little inferno um which is on uh, App Store and on PC as well, I think. It's um, it's a really odd little casual game made by um, this developer called 2D Boy. It's a virtual fireplace. And the only thing that you do in it is you put things in the fireplace and then you burn them. And when you burn things in certain combinations, you get points that you can use to buy more things to burn. <laughs> And it starts getting just, they play with this concept and it gets weirder and weirder as time goes on. And it ends up becoming this kind of odd narrative about casual games themselves. And is this actually a good use of your time just burning things? Um, But at the same time, it's just really warm and funny. And there's a little love story that's kind of crafted into it. Um, And it's just a small kind of like four or $5 game. But yeah, it's just very interesting. I like it. That sounds interesting. Apples. Like some sort of bizarre, like philosophical depth in an incredibly simple game. 
yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's unexpected. And that's what I like about that. Um, and then oh, you limited me to five, didn't you? Oh. Yes. So the other one on my list is um, a game, another one I've put an inordinate amount of time into, a game called Neo Scavenger. Um, and that is, you see a lot of these survival games, games like Project Zomboid or uh, Dead State coming out now, where it's like you are a, um, a person who has survived the zombie apocalypse or a nuclear apocalypse, and how are we going to survive? And a lot of those games are kind of quite like Fallout, quite shallow. You know, you don't really need to worry about eating and sleeping and stuff like that. And Neo Scavenger is very simple, made by one man. Um, graphically, it's nothing really to write home about, but it takes that concept to the completely illogical conclusion to the point where if your character wears the wrong size shoes or wears shoes on the wrong feet, he'll get blisters that could get infected, which might fall, cause him to fall over. And then he might, if he falls over, break his arm, and then that could get infected, and then he dies. And it's just, it's an incredibly deep simulation of all these um, possibilities, which I really like because I'm rubbish at it. I'm really bad at it, but I like playing it. <laughs> You're just getting blisters on your feet all the time. Yeah, like I so many times i've played that game again i've probably put hundreds of hours into it now but so many times that like i play it and i die within the first like five or six like minutes of the game just because you know something interesting that i wasn't expecting happened to me and i just have to roll with it and then i can't and these little stories that come out about the time that i ended up running away from a bear from a, a big werewolf creature sorry um, with nothing but a couple of rocks to throw at it and wearing a cloak made out of plastic bags that I'd found in a bin. Um, <laughs> yeah, those little stories, I like I like getting those out of games. So yeah. that will probably be on this as well. That's cool, man. But, but mind you, I do have a list of like 100 or so other games on here which I could consider. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really happy with your list because I, yeah, I only know of Dishonored and The Secret of Monkey Island, so I will definitely have to check out those other ones. They all sound really cool. Yeah, they are. And, and again, like the thing I like about them is they're so accessible. So Neo Scavenger and Little Inferno are both games that are um, like you can buy like probably less than ten dollars for either of them. And Facade is completely free. So I'd very much encourage everybody to at least check one of them out. Yeah, um, they all they're all interesting, uh, even if you know they're not normally the sort of thing that you might play. Totally. And I love, I love, yeah, like I said, I think you and I probably do have very similar tastes because I, I, if I were to create a top five games list, it would be similar in that it's like I, I could easily acknowledge that there would be, that there's better games that I've played than the games that would be on my top five list. But it's like you have to give like credit where credit's due and kudos to the people that are doing these really amazing, crazy, creative things with video games, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and there's so much of that, like especially now we see games coming out and we're still going to see even more of it in the future as well with things like virtual reality um, becoming uh, possible again. And it's going to be, yeah, it's a really exciting time in games to see this these sorts of experimental new ideas coming out. Yeah, definitely. So let's see here. Joe, why don't you tell us about like your favorite part about writing games 
And then if you want to leave us off with some advice, if anybody would like to become a game writer themselves, like what has been your, your favorite part of your career as a games writer? Um, as my favorite part of, of my career is just that, you know, for someone, for someone like me who kind of grew up playing games, it was, it was what we did, you know, in my, in my family, my, my dad and even though it wasn't always computer games, he was really into just games and keeping people occupied, um, getting people to think about things in new ways. Um, and so games were a kind of a defining influence on my life. And I've always loved them. And I grew up, as I say, talking about them at school every day and being able to then go out and meet the people that actually made those specific games that had like a defining influence on me, whether it's Ron Gilbert, who... Um, Schaefer, who worked on The Secret of Monkey Island, or Harvey Smith and Jordan Thomas, who worked on games like Thief and uh, Deus Ex and Dishonored. Like being able to meet those people and find out what they were thinking and understand their process, uh, that's the most rewarding part of it for me. It, it, it would be very easy to say, um, you know, the best part of being a games journalist is I get to play games all day and that's great. And that is great. Like that is an, an amazing privilege. Um, but personally, like it's being able to meet those people that I really enjoy um, because I can play games whenever I want as well. Cause I'm an adult and I can decide how to use my time. <laughs> um, Definitely. So I, I will sit around in my pants all, all weekend and, and play computer games now. Um, as for advice for people looking to get into it, it's, Man, it's tricky. I mean, part of me just wants to turn around and say, just don't. Um, but it's, it's a hard industry to break into um, because so many people want to do it. So many people um, view it as, I want to play. I really like games and I want to play games for a living. And they don't go much deeper than that. Um, and so there's a lot of people who want to get into it. Five years ago, I'd have started my own YouTube channel. Two, three years ago, I'd, I'd be focusing on building a big Twitch following. I'd, if I was getting into the industry now, I don't know. I'd, I'm not sure where I'd start. Um, <laughs> yeah, like t- two or I, three years from now, you'll be able to look back and, and say what it was that you should have done right now. But it's one of those things yeah, that it's hard I, to I, know I, at the there'll time. Be some, there'll be some new website or some new thing, and I'll be like, oh, man, I should have. Two or three years ago, I could have got back into it. I could have made millions if I'd, just, <laughs> yeah. if I'd started, you know, doing a podcast about stuff with a certain format or something like that. Uh, nobody knows what's going to be successful. So you just have to stay open to as many of these opportunities as you can. Yeah. So it sounds like probably better off to just be an entrepreneur and work for yourself. And if oh, so- you start out as an entrepreneur, I mean, you always could just bring those articles that you've been writing to one of the bigger gaming websites or tell them about your traffic numbers on your blog or whatever it is and maybe get a job through that route. But you're definitely right. It's best to be an entrepreneur at the moment rather than looking for, you know, waiting for PC Gamer or official Xbox magazine to hire a staff writer and then sending one of like a thousand applications in and hoping you get it because if you're doing something for yourself, you're in control whereas and that's what you want you don't want to be waiting for somebody else to give you a chance you want to be making your own opportunities yeah man great advice all the way around no matter what you're doing also never listen to an old fart like me because i just don't know 
Yeah, dude. Amen to that. Absolutely. Um, Joe, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's uh, been awesome to talk about games for over an hour. Um, Yeah, dude, it's just been great having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's been great to talk and uh, thank you for listening. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Joe. If you did enjoy the episode, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. It's pretty simple. Just search for Half Hour Intern on iTunes and you can leave a review from there. On uh, this coming Thursday's episode, we'll be changing gears a little bit. I will be interviewing a foreign aid advisor. So he helps analyze and advise how foreign aid is working and how foreign aid needs to be tweaked in order to work better. So um, really interesting episode coming up on Thursday. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show.